<clears throat> well, thank you, worship team, for leading us in worship today. You know that our theme for the fall this year is the church. Why does it matter? The entire year we've asked that question, why does it matter? And we've explored various facets of that question. And for the fall, we are looking at the church. So what we're going to do over these next eight weeks, we introduced the topic last Sunday, but the next eight weeks, we are going to examine eight different characteristics that we have found in the New Testament, primarily the book of Acts, that describe the church. And I want us to learn together about what is the church? What kind of characteristics should describe the church? And so we will be reading the book of Acts together in our daily Bible readings. Now, the book of Acts, that is Luke's account of the ministry of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, continued through the church. That's really what the book of Acts is. So we'll, we've already begun our daily Bible readings, but we'll read through it. We'll have the conversations in here on Sunday morning. We'll supplement uh, our learning together through the curriculum that we have prepared for you. Our staff has written. So we have these nine Sunday school lessons that you're already studying in your Sunday school classes about these nine basic beliefs, uh, core beliefs to the Christian faith. We also have the catechism that Kurt has written, Glorifying God Before the Jesus Way. And we have those available if you would like to, um, to pick up one of those today. And then also, uh, a few years ago, uh, Katie Hodges and I were talking about um, just a regimen of preaching on Sunday morning, and she said something like, I know that there's more that you have to say, but you don't have time every Sunday morning. Music to a preacher's ears, by the way, that someone would feel that way. And she said, wouldn't you like to tell us more? And so she, it was her idea to start this podcast, Tell Me More. And so every week, wherever you get your podcast, you can find Tell Me More. And it is a conversation that I have with Katie and, and Luke Stair. And we basically talk about the sermon on Sunday morning and what else we might learn from it as we explore the topic a little more deeply. So with that said, if you have your copy of the New Testament, I'll invite you to the second page of Acts. And we're going to look at this text. I've entitled it First Baptist Arlington. We believe. So here's where we are in Acts 2. On the calendar in the first century, this would have been known as the Feast of the Harvest for the Jews. The Jews divided their calendar into festivals. And so the Feast of the Harvest, sometimes it was called the Feast of Weeks because this feast took place seven weeks after Passover. And the day after that, which was the 50th day, and so Penta, 50, Pentecost became the name of the feast. And it was to celebrate the harvest, obviously. However, by the time in the, that uh, this happens in the first century, the Jews had actually added to the celebration. And it became an anniversary celebration of the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. So the imagery of the presence and the glory of God, the smoke on Mount Sinai, if you will, the fire the thundering voice of God. Uh, all of that is in the ethos of this particular celebration. And there are Jews from all over the world who are here in Jerusalem for this feast. 
and they are there to thank God for how he's provided for them. Now, on this particular Pentecost, the followers of Jesus are in Jerusalem. There are 120 of them. Jesus has died, been resurrected, and ascended to the Father. And he had told them to wait in Jerusalem, which is what they were doing. And Luke tells us what happens. Luke says there was this sound. He said it was, it was like a rushing wind. He said there was this sight. There were these tongues of, of fire. He says then there was this speech where these people began speaking in languages in which they were trained and everyone from all over the world could hear them speaking in their own indigenous language. And so you have this, this uh, expression of power with the rushing wind of purity with fire. And then you have this miracle of language. And many theologians see this as a reversal of the Tower of Babel, where the world was divided and separated into language groups at the Tower of Babel. And now here's a message about the universal nature of the gospel, if you will, here at Pentecost. And so... Once all that happens, Peter and the apostles realize this is a fulfillment of prophecy. It's a fulfillment of the prophet Joel from the Old Testament. Peter calls attention to that, but it's also a fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus. We don't just interpret Pentecost through the eyes of Joel. We actually interpret Pentecost through the eyes of Jesus. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem, I'll pour my spirit out upon you and then you'll have power. And that's exactly what's happened. So then once all that happens, Peter stands up and preaches and he, he helps the, the Jews there understand what's occurred. And that's where we pick up the story. After he tells all about Jesus, he basically preaches the gospel about Jesus. And then we're going to begin in verse 37. But in verse 36, here's what he says. He says, this I let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. So that's the, that's the context. So let's pick it up in verse 37. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. In other words, when they heard the man you crucified is both Lord and Messiah. And he said, or he said um, when the people heard this, they're cut to the heart and they said, Brothers, what shall we do? Verse 38, Peter said, there's nothing you can do. It's too late. You're condemned. You've crucified Jesus. There is no hope for you. Aren't you glad that's not what he said? Aren't you glad that's not what the gospel says to you today? It's too late. You've done too much. There's no hope for you. You, you'll never get over your sin. You'll, you'll never get past. That's not the gospel. It wasn't the gospel then. It's not the gospel now. Once you notice what, G, what, what the Bible says, look at verse 37. When they said this, what shall we do? Here's Peter's answer. Repent. Be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off. That would be us, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized 
and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, we're going to spend eight weeks kind of exploring the teaching about the church and what we discover in the book of Acts. But here's where I want us to start this morning. I want you to think about the images of the church in the New Testament. The New Testament refers to the church as the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the family of God. All of those are images in the scripture. And they're good ones. They help us have a better understanding of who the church is. But you know, the, the image that we've chosen comes from Psalm 1. If you read Psalm 1, the psalmist says, if you will embrace the teachings of the scripture, meditate on them. In other words, give your life to the Lord, build your life on his principles. You'll be like that tree planted by the streams of living water and you'll bear fruit in season. You'll be a productive person. So we've adopted that image for our church. We're a Psalm 1 church. So let me just remind you of that photo or that, that uh, image. If you'll notice, we start with the root system. We want you to be purposeful. We want you to discover why you're here. That's your set of, of beliefs, your core beliefs. Um, that's underground, that's private, and that's where you recognize your purpose for existence as a human. And then, once you meet Jesus, he will not leave you alone. He will not leave you where you are. He will start to transform your life. He wants to change you and conform you to the image of his son. So you're gonna be transformed. And then you will be this influential person so that you will bear fruit for his kingdom. You will cast shade for people to rest around you and you'll be a blessing to others. And so that whole idea of being a Psalm 1 person, being a Psalm 1 church has captivated our imagination. Now, with that said, I'm, I'm always looking for the right Psalm 1 tree that just captures what I believe about who our church is. And so I've landed on this one. This is the angel tree in St. John, John's Island in South Carolina. I love this tree right here. I mean, look at how complex it is. It's a massive trunk. But it has all these branches. Plenty of room to play, have fellowship, sit in the shade, enjoy it. But look at all the fruit, the, the, the beauty of it in its season. And you see all the branches that as they go out, they're each one bearing their own fruit. There's just a certain complexity to that particular tree. That reminds me really of who our church is. First Baptist Arlington is a very complex church. It has a complex ministry environment. On the one hand, you look at our church, and we have a core church, spiritual formation, worship, fellowship, ministry, evangelism, missions. All those are just a, the core of who we are. But there are layers of complexity. When you join this church, this church, you become a part of an incredible web of ministry. So for example, what you've heard about already this morning, we have a counseling center that we support that's on our campus, located in the Wade Building. And these counselors are here every day, five days a week, providing competent therapy from a Christian perspective for people from all walks of life. 
It's not just our church members. It is our church members. But there are people coming to our counseling center from all over this community finding help and hope for the issues that they're facing. And as a member of this church, you're providing that. Every day, we see people coming, into our, coming onto our campus to receive that kind of help. Every day, parents come to our church, and many of them on their way to work, and they leave their children with us in our child development center. About 120 of them are there. And so every day, we are caring for children in a very competent and caring environment in the name of Jesus. One of my granddaughters is in that child development center. One of my granddaughters has already graduated from it. So if you think I don't walk over there every once in a while just to see what is going on, of course I do. Not just because I have a granddaughter there, but because some of y'all's granddaughters are there or your kids are there, kids in this community. And it's important. It's providing a ministry for these families. We have people who move to this community from all over the world. And many of them are trying to find their way in America. They don't necessarily know how to speak English. They don't understand our customs and our culture. So we have a ministry here called International Friends. It meets every week on our campus. And we're teaching people how to speak English conversationally. We're ministering to them and sharing with them how they can make a life here, however long it is that they're going to be here. And we welcome them with open arms in the name of Jesus. We have people across our culture who are sexually broken and they have all kinds of challenges. It's a very controversial conversation. But at our church, rather than entering into the controversy, we've chosen to just provide a ministry for them. And we invite them here to our campus to Living Hope. And we walk down life's path with them from a biblical perspective, encouraging and blessing them to find their way in hope. Do you know while we're gathered right here on this campus this morning for worship, we have 354 apartment churches scattered all over Arlington that are a part of our Mission Arlington network. Those churches are all chartered through our charter. They all belong to us. So there's another 3,500 people right now gathered for worship and studying the Bible all over this community because of the ministry footprint of First Baptist Arlington, not to mention during the week, how many people come to us for help at Mission Arlington and this church owns and started that ministry to touch the lives of the people in this community. We started the ministry of Christian Women's Job Corps where we help women who find a way to begin with dignity and integrity to provide for their own families and care for them. We, we have three global centers. So when you're part of this church, right now today across the world, we have folks involved in church planting efforts, studying the Bible, conducting discipleship and evangelism and medical ministry and meeting human needs in places like West Africa and Europe on your behalf. They're your church members who happen to live cross-culturally in that environment. Our church is right in the middle of launching a brand new missional network, a missional movement called Ascent. And it is a multi-denominational movement comprised of missional leaders denominational leaders, judicatory leaders, seminary presidents, and pastors all over North America. They come from multiple denominations, and we're launching this new movement, and our goal is to re-evangelize North America because we believe if we re-evangelize North America, it will mobilize the Western church to take the gospel to the rest of the world, and your church is right in the middle of that. We've already helped organize the ministry called Restore Hope, this missional network that allows us to send our missionaries to live across the world and support others who are doing the same. Every Sunday afternoon on this campus, we have people who come from across the community for help. We have a ministry called Divorce Care. We have a ministry called Grief Share. We have a ministry called Cancer Care. They meet here on Sunday afternoons and people come and find help and hope in those ministries. 
Also, we're a downtown church. And so we recognize that we have a role to play in this community that we believe is somewhat unique. And so at the Wade Building and here on our campus, we host all kinds of entities. There are tenants who actually rent uh, their office spaces from us. And they are engaged with us in a daily relationship. Our lives intersect, even though they have their own businesses that they're operating and running, we're connected to them. We also host ministries like Bible Study Fellowship, the men's group. One of the women's groups meets here on our campus every Monday night, starts back tomorrow night. And we're grateful for that, that complex ministry that touches so many churches across our city. Every Friday, the Rotary Club meets here on our campus. We also have opened up uh, our Family Life Center. We now call it our Family Life Experience. It's called Flex. And we're using it to reach people in this community, give them a place to come here in this downtown setting in a, to engage in fitness and relationships. Our cafe, uh, we now have it open. We have people here every day from this downtown community on our campus that we're intersecting with, can have spiritual conversations with. In other words, our church is a complex web of ministries. Now, I know full well, that's really just a glimpse of what we're doing. There are a whole lot of other ministries I didn't even mention, and I'll hear from them here in a little while, so I want you to know, I, already, I know about all them. So we're doing all this, and we're also doing all of that, whatever that is that I didn't mention this morning. The point is, when you become a part of this church, you are now a part of a very complex missional and ministry endeavor that is touching the lives of countless people in this community, and I'm grateful for it. It is a very challenging ministry environment. But with all of that said, people are still confused about the church. What, what is the church? Um, well, we're going to spend these next eight weeks looking at what the book of Acts has to teach us about the church. Because some people, when they think of the church, they say, I don't know what the church is. It's, 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 uh, you, know, you know what the church is? It's, it's this group of people, they buy up a bunch of property and they build buildings and they don't pay taxes on them and they're only open one day a week. I don't know what they're, I don't know what they're doing down there at the church. Or some people look at the church and say, well, the church is just a social center. It's, it's just a place for people who, are, who like each other to just meet together once in a while and do whatever it is that they do. Some people say, you know, the church, all that it does, it's just there to make the rest of us feel guilty for having fun. Now, that's really what the church does. They just, they're just our conscience. I mean, there's all different views about the church. So, what is it? You, you, you think about it with me. How in the world, if you go all the way back to the first century, okay? We're about AD 30 or so when this happens. You've got about 120 Jews in Jerusalem. And that's really all you have. How in the world did that, that, that group of 120 Jews, most of them had never traveled outside of Israel. How in the world did that grow into this worldwide movement that has literally blanketed the world and is the only religion in the history of the world that right now has a presence in every country on the face of this planet, and it is now the largest religious movement in the history of humanity, bar none. How did that happen? Well, it's a, it's a powerful story, and there are layers of complexity to it, and so I'm not going to unpack all of that, but here's what I'd like to do today. I just want us to begin the conversation of what is supposed to be happening at a local church. 
That's what I want us to talk about. So if you ask me, what is the church? I'll give you my elevator speech. Here's what I'd say. The church is a purposeful community of gathered believers following the Jesus way together. That's what I would say. There are better definitions of the church, but that's how I would put it. It's a purposeful community. We're not just here. We're here for a reason. And we're together. We gather together. And we're believers. And we're following the Jesus way together. And I get it. We're, we're not perfect, right? We're not perfect. Come on, y'all. Look at us. Look at y'all. I mean, look at who's sitting around you. We are not perfect. Seriously. We're just not. That's not the point. I mean, we're not perfect. But you know what we are? We're people who have made a decision to follow Jesus in spite of our frailties, our weaknesses, in spite of our brokenness. We've decided we believe this right here is right. And so let's talk about who the church is. So how do you get in the church? How does it work? How do you become a part of a church? How do you become a part of this church? How does it work? Well, here's where I want us to begin the conversation. If you want to look at us from a theological perspective and a historical perspective, we are a believer's church. That's who we are. There are different ways to do this. There are different models of church in existence in Christendom. Most every church I know of, the way you become a member of the church, the way you actually get in the church is you are to be baptized. Now, the overwhelming majority of Christendom, in other words, the largest denominational expressions of Christianity, Roman Catholicism, uh, Anglicanism, or the Episcopal Church, the Orthodox Church, overwhelmingly, the largest branch of Christendom baptizes infants. And so the baptism of an infant in much of Christian life today is the entry into the church, okay? A lot of reasons for infant baptism. I'm not gonna go into all that today. But what I would tell you is our church, we don't baptize infants at First Baptist Arlington. Why? We're believers church, Okay, last night, I was doing exactly what you were doing. I was reading over the constitution and bylaws of our church. <laughs> I know several of y'all were texting me about it, asking me about some of the grammar. I get it. It's kind of the Saturday night thing to do. It's what I was doing last night. So when you look at our, we've been here since 1871, so don't be shocked that we have a constitution and bylaws, okay? Every chartered church in the state of Texas has one, Okay. In our Constitution, we actually have a statement about what we believe, okay? There are all kinds of things in here, but one of the articles says this, we believe in a regenerated church membership. The experience of conversion through faith in Jesus Christ is a prerequisite for baptism and subsequent church membership. That little statement sums it up for us. We're a regenerate church membership. That means that you have to be born again become a believer, and then be baptized as a believer to be a member of this church. We are a believer's church. You don't become a member of First Baptist Arlington by showing up. You don't become a member of First Baptist Arlington because your grandparents are members here. That's, that's not how it works. You, as an individual, make a decision 
to follow Jesus in your own life and commit yourself to Jesus in your own life, repent of your sins and confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and you're baptized as a believer and then you can be a member of this church. You don't have to be baptized in this church. You don't have to be baptized by one of us. You don't even have to be baptized as a Baptist. We just ask that you be baptized as a believer and then you can become a part of this church. Now also in this Constitution, we make a statement, which is important. We don't talk about it necessarily a lot, but, but you need to know it. We have adopted and embraced a confession of faith. It's known as the Baptist Faith and Message. And it is the one that was adopted in 1963 by the Southern Baptist Convention. That is the confession of faith that we believe best represents what we believe as members of this church. Now, the Baptist Faith and Message is somewhat of a complex and lengthy document. I get it. So here's what we've done. We've distilled it down and we've put it in language that's more accessible for everyone. And so if you were to go to fbca.org slash what dash we dash believe forward slash. Or you can just go to our website and just click on what we believe. Can do that. And it'll give you this little menu. And basically this menu is also in this document that's available in our Welcome Home Center. These are our core beliefs. We believe everything starts with God. That's our first core belief. And we walk you right through everything that we believe as a church. The reason for that is we are a believer's church. Now, why are we a believer's church? Why, why do we do it the way we do it? Well, the reason we do is because when we study the New Testament together, it's our consensus as a group of people that we believe this is the closest to the teachings of the New Testament or we wouldn't do it. Now, I'm not saying that critically of any other denomination or church because I'm grateful to the Lord for the breadth of Christianity. I'm so grateful there are so many different expressions of the Christian faith so that all of us can find a place in the Christian family in places that are more suitable and, and in ways that we believe best express what we think the Bible teaches. Aren't you? Aren't y'all glad? I'm glad we have that freedom. And so we're a believer's church because this is what we believe is taught in the New Testament. So one of the reasons we're a believer's church is because we go all the way back to the very first church, okay? The very first, are y'all still with me? All right, go back to all the way back to the very first church. This one, the church at Pentecost, okay? And here's what we learn. The church was birthed at Pentecost and comprised of people who accepted, who believed the gospel, very first church. How did you get in the church at Pentecost? Well, I want you to look at what the text says. If you'll look at uh, verse 41, if you still have your Bibles open, it says, those who accepted his message, which was to repent, to believe. If you look at verse 44, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. So these early Christians were referred to as believers. So the very first church the way you became a part of it was you believed, you put your faith in Jesus, you were forgiven for your sin, you repented, you were baptized as a believer, and then you were a part of the church. So there's a new era being inaugurated here. The Spirit of God is given, the church is born, and it is filled with believers. Okay, real quickly. So what do we believe? I mean, if we're, if we're a believer's church, what do we believe in? Well, the answer is very simple. The gospel. That's what we believe in. 
the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? The good news, what is it? Well, in order to know and answer that question, what we do is we look at what the scripture teaches us. So if you take the sermon of Simon Peter, and if you will compare it to the message of Jesus, and you will also add to it the teachings of the apostle Paul in his letters, you'll understand the gospel. Let me summarize it for you this morning so that we'll all understand this is what we believe according to the apostolic witness, okay? What is the apostolic witness? That is the testimony of the apostles given to them by Jesus, okay? And so right now, if you have a Bible in your hands and you have a New Testament, you're holding the apostolic witness. That's what the New Testament is. It is the witness of the apostles. Every book in the New Testament was either written by an apostle or by someone who was associated very closely with an apostle or else their book would not be in the New Testament because the New Testament is the apostolic witness. Well, what is the gospel according to the apostolic witness? Well, let me just summarize it for you. First of all, Jesus Christ lived as a man and he was accredited as divine through attesting miracles. Jesus was a human, fully. He was also fully divine. And his ability to engage in these miraculous acts attestify to the fact that he was divine. Second, Jesus Christ was put to death on a cross by men, though according to the divine purposes of God. The Romans crucified over 40,000 people, but none of them died for you. Jesus is the only one who died for you. And he didn't die just because of what the Romans did. He died according to the divine purposes of God. Third, Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead as foretold by the prophets and witnessed by the apostles. So on the one hand, he was, he was raised from the dead based on what the scripture uh, predicted or prophesied. But also, these people who wrote about it, they saw it. And they saw him as the resurrected Lord for those 40 days. Then Jesus Christ has ascended to the Father. He's been exalted as his son, and he has sent the Holy Spirit. So we believe that after Jesus died, he was raised from the dead, and then he was gloriously ascended to the Father. God then exalted him at his right hand, and then Jesus did exactly what he said he would do. He sent the Holy Spirit to us. Jesus Christ offers his spirit to all who repent from their sins and believe in him. That's exactly what Simon Peter said. He said, forgive, repent, and be forgiven. And you'll be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you make the decision to follow Jesus, and you say you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you invite Jesus into your life, and you accept him as your Lord and your Savior, the Bible teaches us you are now born again, born anew, born of the Spirit, and God gives you the gift of his Holy Spirit to now reside in you. Then Jesus Christ adds these believers to his new community, the church. What does this text tell us? These people who repented, who believed, who were baptized, they were added to the number of the believers. They became a part of the community of faith. You become a member of the church, and then you live in this new community that we call the church and follow the Lord Jesus with fellow believers. So when you ask me about First Baptist Arlington, here's where I would start, just so you know. First Baptist Arlington, we believe. We're, we're believers. We believe all this. We actually believe the gospel. It's what draws us together. We're not drawn together because we hold so many things in common. 
We're not drawn together in this church because we have a similar political perspective. Duh. Have y'all ever visited our church? Visit us during an election and you'll see how diverse we are. We don't come together because of our political opinions. We don't come together because of our ethnicity. We don't come together because we all live in the same neighborhood. We don't come together because our kids all go to the same schools. That's not who we are. We come together because we have made a decision that we believe this gospel and we want to worship and serve the Lord in this particular community and we want to do it in a way that is indigenous to us as the people who feel led to be a part of this very body. And the message is the gospel. And the gospel is bigger than and deeper than and sturdier than anything else you could choose to draw us together. It supersedes everything else the gospel. And so it's sturdy enough. You can trust it. It's good enough for all people for all time. That's why I love Romans 1. You know what Paul the apostle says in Romans 1? Paul's writing to the church at Rome about AD 54 or so. And Paul had never been to Rome, but he knew the church was in Rome and he knew what was in Rome. He knew that Rome was the mightiest city in the world, bar none. And every year when I lead this tour of Rome, we always stand in the Roman Forum and we read Romans 1. Because the Roman Forum is ancient Rome, now in ruin. In Paul's day, it was in full flower. All of those dilapidated buildings were glistening and sparkling with marble and gold dedicated to pagan gods from across the panoply of Roman mythology and Greek culture. And Paul knew that. It was the seat of the empire. And I believe one of Paul's fears was that the church in Rome would be enamored with the wrong kind of power because he knew that power was fleeting. And if you go stand there today and look at it in ruin, you know it's fleeting because it no longer stands in glory It's a testimony to who Rome used to be. But Paul said this in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He said, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Hallelujah. That was true when he wrote it. That's true today. I am not ashamed of the gospel because I know it is the power of God and it'll bring salvation to anybody who believes. So who are we as a church? We are a group of believers. Praise God. Let's bow together for a time of prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for the gospel, for the power of the gospel. Lord, the hope of the gospel. Well, thank you for the good news of the gospel. And we'll thank you that the gospel's sturdy and strong and that it has great application even today. I pray your blessings on those right now, Lord, who need to accept it for the very first time. May they open up their hearts and their life to it. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.